So Matthew chapter 4, go ahead and grab your Bible, turn there, Matthew chapter 4, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, just for next week, for future, you can grab one on your way in, also our ushers will come down now if you just need one, just kind of pop up your finger or something and uh, they'll hook you up with a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible of your very own, we'd be glad for you to take that, and it is yours now, so we'd be really glad for you to have that guy and, um, and really chew that thing up, that'd be great for us. So... Uh, Matthew chapter 4 is where we're looking today. Just keep your finger there. We're, um, we're in, again, this series called So What? And we're looking at Jesus, specifically instances where we see Jesus sowing the seed of the gospel. What we're looking at is the, the methods that he employed as he was sowing this life-changing, powerful seed of the gospel. And, and the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, come to dwell among us as we saw the incarnation a few weeks ago and he came to live the life that we just can't live to die the death that we deserve and what theologians often call the great exchange where he gives his righteousness for our unrighteousness it's this incredible substitutionary payment that he pays when he dies on the cross for us on our behalf and and this wonderful exchange therefore if we would trust in his work on the cross, in his righteousness, not our righteousness. We get life abundantly on this earth, and we get life eternally, and now we're on a mission. And, and so that's the seed. That's, that's the gospel. And Jesus doesn't need us, but yet he chooses to give us the privilege to be used of him to, to plant the seed in the lives of, of people around us. And he commonly uses us today. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're again today going to look at what did he do? What, what exactly did he do? And we're going to follow that example. So our, our first week together, we talked about this language of planting and sowing. We saw uh, the parable of, of the sower and, and these different types of soil that represent the hearts of different people. Some are hard. Uh, the, the, the greatest instant are those who are soft, but there are some who have rock underneath and they can't go very deep because there's ledge and the roots can't go deep. There's some with weeds and thorns and it chokes out the seed of the gospel because people are preoccupied with finances and pleasures and riches and 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 so there are these, these different types of, of soil so that was uh, our very first week our second week we looked at the the method of jesus that he was incarnational this idea of christmas right he comes down he lives among us he gets humble he gets relational among his people the third week we saw that jesus was missional that he was here as a man on a mission he had a purpose he had a reason he was here and he was among people in the culture but nothing stopped him from marching forward to the cross that's where he was going and today here's what we're going to see today we're going to see that he was attractional attractional we'll see where that goes he's attractional um i want i want to give you uh probably the most annoying sound you could possibly imagine falling asleep to you ready for this Imagine falling asleep to this sound. So I have this neighbor in my, my old house in central Massachusetts, and uh, he was one of those neighbors who was, was really glad to use his house as an opportunity to depreciate the value of my house, which makes it very difficult when you're trying to sell a house, you know? And so I'll just, I, I, maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you've had one of those neighbors. I love the guy, good friend, but uh, yeah, just, just kind of funny. And uh, let me give you some examples. Like, for example, one, one of his kid's birthdays, he decided it would be a good idea to build the, the kid a seesaw, 
or teeter-totter, whatever you call it. But this wasn't any seesaw. This was like mega seesaw, right? In the front yard, like stationary in the front yard as a permanent fixture, like 10-foot-long seesaw. It looked more like a catapult. It was just massive. And it just, it lives there, in the, dead in front of the house, right? If, if that's not bad enough, then next to the seesaw is a swing set that they don't actually use for, for swinging on. Instead, they drape a tarp over top of the swing set, and it's a storage unit in their front yard. And so they take all the kids, like, yard toys and the plastic, you know, like Fred Flintstone car, you know, and shove it under the tarp, and it's this great storage unit, uh, happily depreciating the value of, of my house next door. And uh, so just, just love the guy. And, and then, so one day I'm hanging out with the guy, and I said, so um, we're just kind of talking, and he goes, Josh, you're so lucky. I'm like, what? He goes, you're so lucky that you get to park your cars in your garage. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, why don't you park your cars in your garage? He goes, it's full of Christmas stuff. And so this was like, you know, before Christmas hit, after he moved in. So full of Christmas stuff. He's like, yeah, we really, we really like Christmas. And so some of you have, have been to my old house, and uh, man, Christmas is legit in my neighborhood. Like, it is, it is serious. And so Christmas rolls around, and he fills one and a half acres full of plastic Christmas figurines. You know, I'm talking about the kind that light up, and uh, I mean, it's just wow. And so you're going to bed, and you see out the window, like, oh, it's incredible. It's just lit up all over the place. And, and I'm, not, I'm not a Grinch. Like, I really love Christmas. I really do. But just imagine, I mean, there's something, there's something weird and wrong about life-size glowing nativity scene. And so you have, like, the actual, you know, built manger or nativity in the manger. And you have Mary and Joseph and glowing baby Jesus with a halo around his head. I don't think that's really how it looked. But then you have the animals. And then you have, you know, the, the wise men the shepherds, and Snoopy, right, in the nativity scene with his, his Santa Claus hat on. And there's just something, I don't know, there's something wrong about the, you know, the Christmas decorations. Like, just kind of crazy. And then it gets especially wrong when they don't get taken down till like, March, April, you know. And, and so they're there. And, and then on top of that, I'm trying to sell my house, and, and it's all, like, right there, you know, halfway, you know, like Snoopy's head's kind of buried in the snow, poking out, you know. Just imagine this with me. It was, it was, it was not, not good. And so thank you for letting me vent for a minute. That was very therapeutic for me. And um, so back to the, back to the sound. Uh, this was another one of those great yard ideas of his. Summertime rolls around, and um, it's hot, you know. And, and it's hot outside. And so when you go to bed, you want to you open up your windows and get the breeze going. And he thought it would be a really good idea to grab one of those uh, classic blue bulb bug zappers. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I grew up with those things. Very entertaining. Very entertaining, right? And so he, he thought it would be a great idea to run an orange extension cord across his front yard all the way to the edge of his lot, like a foot off of my lot. Right? And I don't, I don't see that that really does much for the bug issue by his house. But he, he would then suspend it every, every year from a tree about 10 feet high and leave the thing running all night long. So I'm just lulled to sleep, rocked to sleep in the summer, in the spring, in the fall to And then the occasional fat one. And it's just, oh my goodness. And then you wake up out of bed and you're, it's incredible incredible and so there's something there's something about light right there's something about light that that we're drawn 
to light, right? Let's like stop right here with the illustration because the point is not get close to the light and then he'll zap you, right? But there's something about light that, that we're drawn to it. And, and when we're in darkness, we're, we want to get to light. For example, even when it's, it's smoking hot outside in the summer and, and we're camping and there's a fire pit, even though it's hot, we're not trying to warm up, but we still are drawn and we all huddle around the fire because we like the light. And, and the light is just this wonderful illustration. And Jesus created light. He knows it. He uses it. And he calls us as Christians, as we're going to see here, to be lights, to be the light of the world, and maybe some of you are, are familiar with what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here in, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and, and 7, where Jesus gets up on this mountaintop and he gives this long discourse to, to people. And, and it was such a powerful discourse that at the end of the discourse in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, here's what it says. It says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so what I want to do is I want to use our our short time together this morning to just look at a few pieces from this sermon on on the mountaintop so that you can see that Jesus was attractional. We've already seen that he was incarnational, that he's missional, but a lot of people actually leave out this this idea of Jesus being attractional. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, where I've already had you turn, and let's read it. It says this, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So, as we saw last week, he was a missionary. He was missional. He was here as one who had been sent on, on a mission towards the cross, right? He's marching towards the cross. And, and, and mission means you're going somewhere. You have a goal. You're, you're trying to get somewhere. And what does it say here, verse 23, right at the beginning of this text? It says that he went. And so, Christians in the room, we've got to know that we can't just be sitting we can't just sit, but we've got to know that, that we have to go. He went, that was his example, and we have to go. But I also want us to see, it's easy to overlook, but there is also this element of, of attraction, attraction. And, and he had the privilege, verse 23, it says, of, of proclaiming the gospel of the, the, the kingdom, it says. But this is also coupled with what he was doing. He was healing every disease and every affliction, verse 24, so his fame spread. It says he, he became famous. He became Jesus, uh, a rock star type in his day and age where people were just flocking to Jesus and, and surrounding Jesus. And so after he made that first step of being missional and incarnational and living among us, what happened? He becomes recognized and he begins to, to gain the esteem of, of the people to the point that Verse 24, it says that they start to bring, they brought people to him, and they brought people to him with, with their needs. In verse 25, great crowds are now surrounding Jesus. And I want you to see that he was, he was missional, and so we must be willing to be sent into the world. And, and again, as, as Jesus said, John chapter 17, he prayed this, 
he prayed this right before going to the cross, his high priestly prayer. He says, I, I have sent them as you have sent me, and I want them to be not taken out of the world, but I want them to be in the world, not of the world. And as, as we do this, what's going to happen is you're in the world, not of the world, but you are in the world. This is not a, a separatist movement, the Christian faith. No, we are in the world, we're in the world, and we're, we're, we're living the life that God has called us to. What will happen is people will start to be attracted, drawn to believers. You get that? People should be drawn to you. Now, I know people who claim to be believers, who claim to be Christians, but no one, no one is attracted to them because they're arrogant, maybe they're extremely aggressive, maybe they're religious, maybe they're self-righteous, but that was not Jesus. And, and I, I really believe that we need to look at, at the life of Jesus. A great place to start is the book of Luke. Very detailed. He gives us the life of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Hold your life up to that example. And, and if you're living a life like Jesus, people will be drawn. And if you're a Christian and people aren't drawn to you, then you're probably not living a life like Jesus. And so they were drawn as he, he lived this, this glowing, light-ish type life in the world and as he met needs. And, and listen, we should be a people who add to our community. We should be a people who add value to our community. Not suck the life out of it, but add value to your community. And what's going to happen is people see you and see you start to add value to your community. People are going to start to be drawn to you and they'll start to give you some esteem where they're starting to, 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 to open up to, to, to say, okay, what is it that he is all about? What is it that, that she is all about? And that was the example of Jesus. He was in the culture. He was missional. And there was this attractional element to his ministry. Let's read on now. The next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now let's stop there. So now we see there, there are crowds. So here's, let's just kind of see the progression that we've moved along in the life of Jesus, and we've moved along in this teaching series together. First, first of all, we move from Jesus being incarnational two weeks ago where he has come to the earth to become one of us and guess what nobody seems to care right only people who show up are these lowly shepherds right initially some wise men come later if you know the story and the timeline properly but initially just some some lowly shepherds nobody really seemed to to care then we move to to last week he's he's missional and and people start to notice jesus and they they start to care they start to to care to the extent that they want to kill him Right? He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and what happens? They drive him to the edge of a cliff so that they can throw him over the cliff, and he kind of weaves through the crowd. They want to kill him, but people did care. So this week, he's now attractional, and they're flocking to him, and they, they care, and they want him, and they, they, they want what he has to offer. And as he helps them, they begin to, to listen. And, and so here in verse 1, we see that there's two types of people who are listening to him. We see that there are the crowds, and we see that there are disciples. And even among us, there are people among us right now that some of you are the crowd and others of you are disciples. And his disciples were the ones who said, we are committed to Jesus. We are committed to Jesus. And the crowd is the people that were attracted to Jesus. We like Jesus. In fact, we even kind of like being around, you know, the, the things that Jesus does and the things of, of God. But there's not necessarily that commitment yet. And I guess for starters, for us in here today... What we need to ask ourselves is, 
are we the crowd or are we the committed? Are we the crowd or are we true disciples of Jesus Christ who have counted the cost and we're ready to live for him and, and to follow him no matter the cost? No matter the cost. And now what happens from here as he's identified crowds and, and the committed, what happens from here is he spends three chapters teaching these people, teaching primarily his disciples, but teaching these people. And what I want to do is I just want to kind of survey it for you. I just want to kind of give you some samples here. So look down now at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 5. You ready for this? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Stop there, verse 14. Now, Jesus kind of shifts things, doesn't he? Like, people have come to, to, to see Jesus. He's the attraction. They've come to him. They've been drawn to him. And now he says, what? He says, now you are the light of the world. Now, this is interesting. If you remember, uh, it was probably a couple months ago when we first started this church, and, and we were doing this series called The Final Red Letters and looking at some of Jesus' final teachings before his ascension. If you remember, what happened is people were really expecting Jesus to come in and to whip up on Roman rule, like to come in and show him who's boss, overthrow Rome and come in and, and sit on this throne. That's what people were expecting of, of, of Jesus. And, and, and what they find out is, no, he wasn't going to say, today's the day I'm on this throne and you're going to all today right here in Jerusalem. No, that's not what's going to happen. He says, I have a, a longer range plan. and My timing is I'm going to begin to kind of hand this thing off to you. And so I know that you're drawn to me in this, in this Sermon on the Mount. I know that you're drawn to me, but guess what? He says, you now are the light of the, the world. You're the light of the world. And he says, a city on a hill can, cannot be hidden. Now, ultimately, he's the light through us. But he does say, to quote him, you are the light of the world because he wants to use you. He's saying, now eyes are going to shift and eyes are going to be on you. And you are going to add value. And, and you are going to be the people who, who people are starting to listen to. And, and, and he, shifts, he shifts things a little bit here. Now it's, it's you. And, and so I, I've seen people apply this very wrong. <laughs> like, okay, we're supposed to be attractional, right? Like I remember one time I was in New York City. And I was at Central Park. And I remember seeing these guys <clears throat> dressed up like clowns and on stilts to get everybody's attention to, to become the attraction and screaming, repent, repent. And they're dressed up like clowns, right? Like looking like total fools saying, repent, repent. And I just don't think that that's Jesus kind of attractional. I mean, it was attractional. It was like a circus attraction. But that's not Jesus kind of attractional. Jesus kind of attractional is the kind of attractional that, that adds values adds value to the community. So if you're dressed up like a clown to help out with a community children's program, I can see that, but dressing like a clown just to get people to look at you so that you can scream at them, I just don't see that being Jesus kind of, of attractional. Jesus kind of attractional gets attention so that he can, and as he is giving value to the community, helping the community. Like when we first uh, opened the doors here, we did things around this school like painting over graffiti or walking up West Roxbury and, and Dedham and, and Rosendale and just offering our services to communities and, and, and to businesses and saying, what can we do? We were washing windows, cleaning toilets, uh, setting up displays at a toy store. I mean, we're serving the community, handing out granola bars to people in need. But, but this is attractional where, where you add value to the community. But Jesus goes on then and he says, you are a, a city on a hill. Now think about a city on a hill. If you're out 
in, in the dark and you're lost. And then you see up on a hill this light. You see this city and it's, it's, it's shining and it's glowing. And what a city on a hill is, it's a place of refuge for, for weary travelers. What a city on a hill is, is, is this, this sign of, of there's hope on the horizon. A city on a hill was a place of shelter when you get there and, and, and provision and comfort and, and community. And, and, and interestingly enough, when, when Boston was, was founded, uh, the, the original governor of, of, of this area and a, a famous Puritan leader refers to Boston as a city on a hill, doesn't he? Referring here to Matthew chapter 5, 14, in hopes that we would become this, this biblical community who honors Christ. And so let us as a church redeem that and, and, and renew that and, and return to that, that we might be the city on a hill. And I just pray as a church that would really be us. So Jesus continues. Now look at 515. You ready? 515. And he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So my, my youngest son, Luca, this is his favorite song right now, the classic kid song, Christian kid song, this little light of mine, right? He loves that, and he's always swinging his finger, and he'll be like walking through the mall on the stroll, and he'll go, let it shine, let it shine, let, like just out of the blue. He just loves that song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel basket, right? No, I'm going to let it shine. And he loves the basketball. He just loves this song. And, and, and what happens is if you have a light, you're going to put it somewhere where it can illuminate. In their day, they would have these little lanterns, and they would find the best spot in the house for it, a central location where it could be highest and it could really illuminate the, the best. At night, it's, it's obvious that we put the light on the place where it has the max amount of potential for illumination, and that should be our lives and that should be our church that we have the max amount of potential for illumination in this community that we would be a light of hope that we'd be a light of help that we would be a light of of christ's righteousness and 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 listen here's the deal i know a lot of good people do you i know a lot of good people that don't love jesus i know a lot of good people that we could look at and say she's a beacon of light in this community he's a beacon of light in this community, but they might not love Jesus. And so what's the difference? Here's the difference. The difference is our light should be the kind of light that causes people to glorify God. Let's read on. Look at verse 16. Here's what it says. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, here's the reason, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so what makes our attractional method different when people are drawn to us, what makes us different is that the glory doesn't stop with us. We don't even let ourselves in our heart receive the glory, but we deflect the glory off and, and on to, to God. And so the question is, is do, do your works, I mean, obviously we know that works don't save us, but, but there, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be living a life of good works. The, the Bible says what we're doing right now is so that we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, good works. And so I want to ask you, do your works point people to God? Do people know why you are the, the way you, you are? Do you deflect? And some of you say, well, no, I, I don't deflect. And here's the deal. If you don't deflect, you may be getting some glory from people. Whether you want it or not, people 
if you don't deflect or begin again in their heart to, to begin to, to sing your praises. And so you have to deflect. If you just are a good person in the community, suddenly you start to receive glory from them. And you've got to learn to say, no, 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 it's not, it's not about me. It doesn't mean that after every phrase you say, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord. My, my wife would always joke me when I started preaching, you know. People would come up to me and say, great sermon, Josh. And I just didn't know what to say. So I was just like, praise the Lord. She's like, Josh, it's okay to say thank you, but it's just so confusing, right? It doesn't mean that after every, everything, you always just say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then it just comes kind of this cliche thing you do. But, but what it means, First Peter chapter 3.15, you need to write that reference down. You've got to memorize that passage. What it means is that you're ready to share what it calls the reason for the hope that you have. Here's the deal. 1 Peter 3.15 is so important. Memorize it. It says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. So in other words, in your heart, make sure that Christ is on the pedestal, that it's all about Christ. It's centered around Christ. Set apart Christ, not Josh, not yourself as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. Then it goes on. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, for the reason, for the hope that you have. So be prepared, it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't stand on stilts and start screaming at people. You're going to hell. You're going to repent. Do this with gentleness. Gentleness. Jesus knows how people are going to receive it. And so we need to be ready. We need to be ready to open our mouths. Set apart Christ as Lord and be ready to tell people the reason for the hope that you have. Famous quote, maybe you've heard it before if you've grown up in and around the church by uh, St. Francis Assisi, or at least he gets credit. I'm not even sure anymore. They don't really know for sure that he said this. But the famous quote is, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Anybody ever heard that before? Some of you have heard that before. First of all, they don't even know if he, he said that. But here's, here's the problem with that. It is necessary to use words. God is all about words. Let's, let's just kind of think through the Bible here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? He spoke words, strong, powerful words. Words, that's God's method, right? He spoke words. Let there be, let there be, let there be. What was Jesus called in John chapter chapter 1? In the beginning was the what? The word. Words are important. So, sorry, St. Francis. He's a great guy, great, added a lot. But it is necessary to use words. Yes, preach the gospel with your life. But when it's necessary, not if it's necessary, but when it's necessary, speak the words. You must speak the words. Here's the thing. I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us kind of see the Christian faith as, you know, like chicken pox. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, like it's something that after people are, are drawn to us, if they hang around us long enough, they'll catch it. You know, like if they're around us long enough, they'll, they'll get the, the Jesus bug. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of where we've, we've shifted in our thinking because we've seen a lot of like the hard people, Central Park, you know, downtown Boston, and they're, they're screaming and they're wearing like the, you know, the boards on the front and the back. And, they're, and so we've seen that. We said, okay, that's, that's strange. That doesn't work. And so we pull back and we go to the extreme and we say, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. So it's all about my life and people are going to rub around me and they're going to hear Jesus just through my life and not through my words. And what we need to actually live out is, is a balance that, that yes, our life draws people, but yes, we also speak words and, and people aren't going to hang around us like chicken pox and catch the Jesus bug. Can I, can I just embarrass myself for a minute? You guys like it when I embarrass myself and I do this a lot. But 
I've been in a handful of bands in my life, and uh, I'm embarrassed by, <laughs> I was a drummer in this one band, and uh, we came up with a name for ourselves, and it's always embarrassing. I always ask people when they say they were in a band in high school or something, I always say, what was your band name? Because it's always kind of funny. And so our band name, if I want to embarrass myself, it's called Contagious. Laugh all you want, right? We called ourselves Contagious. We were a Christian band, and uh, the other day I went on this, uh, I went on this, I know, it's ridiculous, I know. And so the other day I went on this website, and it was a website for if you're starting a band, you have a band, and you need to come up with a name for your band, just how to generate some, some band names. And it was some pretty funny stuff, like ideas as to how to name your band. And it, I'll, I'll just give you some lines. It said, if you're a cocky band, use one word. <laughs> like if you're cocky, use one word, like Oasis or Bjork, right, or, or I, don't, I don't know, Muse, or something, you, Contagious, right? Use one word if you, you're, you're a cocky band. It says, if you're a band with the boss, use something like Singer and the Somethings, right? I love that, Singer and the Somethings, and it's, it's, it's you, your band has a boss, and you're kind of retro, right, like Benny and the Jets. I don't think that's a real band, that's just Elton John, right? But you, you get the picture, Alvin and the Chipmunks, I don't know. If you're a band with the boss, use Singer and the Somethings. Here, another one was, if, if you're a band who is clearly on drugs, use, use a children's story or a, a nursery rhyme, you know, like Counting Crows was actually a children's storybook, right? Or, or uh, Jack and Chill. Anybody ever heard of Jack and Chill? Right? Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous, right? Or, or if, if you're really desperate, you just use the classic, use an old, you know, airplane war bomber, right? Like U2, or the B-52s, right? So there's some band names. Hopefully that'll generate some ideas for you. But what did my band use? We used the theologically incorrect, cheesy, cocky band, one word, contagious, right? And, and looking back, listen, first of all, we didn't make it out of my basement, by the way, so I'm really glad we didn't because I would have been really embarrassed. But Jesus isn't a virus. He's not something that is caught, right? You don't inherit salvation. I've always said, you don't carpool to heaven. You don't just hang around Christians and suddenly you get into heaven. You're not going to hang around heaven any more than going to Harvard Square and touring Harvard makes you some kind of brilliant law student. It doesn't work like that. Jesus is not caught. He's not a virus. He's a cure. He's a cure for a, a, a disease. And so what happens is we need to learn to open up our mouths and inject truth, to inject the, the cure into people, the cure for sin and, and death, and, and, and we need to learn to inject that into people. That's why here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on. He continues on. He says, you're the light of the world, which is probably pretty shocking for them. Well, we thought you were the light of the world. He said, well, I'm handing it off. Now you're, you're the light of the world. And then he goes on and he starts to inject some really hard truth for people. He starts to what, what I, I kind of see as starts to shave off people. He starts to kind of weed out the, the uncommitted, the people who weren't committed, and, and, and he starts to say some really hard stuff. And, and so you need to know that, that we're called to adopt the attractional nature of, of Jesus' ministry. And as people are drawn to the light, what will happen is like a glowing fire that, of, that, is, that, is, that is purifying. As you get closer, it gets a bit more difficult and, and sometimes the truth is, is difficult to hear. And, and people don't want to hear the truth of the gospel because it says you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. Jesus did it all. And so Jesus doesn't only attract, but as they get close, he says, okay, now 
Now that you're close, I need to give you something difficult to hear. This is going to be hard to hear, but I'm going to inject some truth into your life. And here's the truth. You need this. And I want you to hear how it goes from kind of fluffy to really difficult here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Flip to the right, Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 27. And listen to how it gets. It gets really difficult here. He's had all these crowds around him. And now here's what he says as he ends the Sermon on the Mount. He actually injects some difficult truth. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock, which is Jesus. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So he's saying, here's the deal, guys. He's looking at his crowd while he's on this, this mountain. He says, here's the deal. You've been attracted to me. You like what I, I have to offer you, that I can meet your physical needs. You like that, but now I have to give it to you straight. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. He's saying it to you today, too, by the way. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. Shout to the Lord. I, I love you, Jesus. He says, Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some of you on that day are going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, why should I let you in, into my kingdom? And you say, well, I was real involved in, in church. I, I, kinda, I think I caught the Jesus bug. You know, I was hanging around Christians and saying the name of Jesus and I went to a couple Bible studies and, and he says, I'll say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. He says, instead, what needs to happen is you need to do the will of my Father and the will of my Father, Jesus says, is, is that you would place faith in me, that you would trust in me, that you would bank it all on me, where you say, Jesus, you're my rock, and I'm just putting my entire life on you, like everything. I'm not like halfway on the foundation. I am fully resting on the foundation to the point that, that when the winds come and, and, and the rains come and the, and the flood and it just beats against the house, I'll be stable because I'm resting it all on, on Jesus. Jesus, I need you to rescue me from my sin. That's the will of, of my Father, Jesus says, that you would confess that you need me and that you trust in me and my work on, on, on the cross to make you right. He's the rock that we build our, our house on, our life on. And, and, and he says that if, if you don't, he says, you're going to fall. And it's not just going to be a little fall, like life is over and, well, you, you push up, you push up some, some daisies, but you don't get to go to heaven. No, he's like, you will fall and great will be your fall. Like eternal separation from God. It's called hell. That will be your fall. It's difficult. It's brutal. It's terrible. He says, great will be your fall. That's why I'm giving it to you hard right now. That's why I'm injecting the cure, the truth right now because I don't want your fall to be great because I love you. And, and I know it's going to freak some of you out. And it's going to scare some of you away, Jesus says. I have this massive crowd and I'm going to have to shave some of you off. You're not going to want this, but you need to hear it. You need to hear that I am not the virus. You don't hang around me. You receive me into you. And, and Christ 
in me, Colossians says, is the hope of glory. That's your hope for glory, is Christ in you. And so you, you need this. And, and, and let me just close with this. I need everybody to, to catch this. Some of you in here today, you're the crowd. And you're around Jesus. And, and you're around the church, the bride of, of, of Christ. But listen, it doesn't make you a Christian today you need to say, Jesus, I, I give it all to you, and I, I put my life on the rock that is Christ and the work that he did, not my work, because my work is like sinking sand. It's just going to wash away. My money is like sinking sand. It's just going to wash away. My, my career is going to wash away. My hobbies, everything that I pride myself in washes away, but Jesus is the rock that will not fail me. And some of you today, you need to trust in that, and you need to just trust that Jesus is, is the one who, who will give you life and life eternally. And, and, and today, if, if you need to do that, man, I would just encourage you in the best way that you know how. Maybe during this last song, you can come and talk to me, one of the leaders. I would encourage you to deal with, with this sin in your heart and say, Jesus, I give it to you, and I follow you, and I trust in you. And, and if you would do us a favor and communicate that to us, that that's you, by just checking that box on the connections card, that would be really encouraging to us. Maybe you just need to talk to somebody a little bit more about that. There's an opportunity on the connections card for you to let us know. Now, for, for Christians in the room, I need to talk to you and close with this. A lot of you, you're kind of living the, the Jesus bug lifestyle, right? Like you think, yes, I, I don't want to be the guy in Times Square, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the thing where I, I let people, you know, like me and love me, and, and someday, someday, you know, who knows, maybe Jesus will come up in conversation. That'd be kind of cool. But listen, they're not going to look at you and say, you're a good person. You must love Jesus. It doesn't work like that. You have to be prepared. You have to share the reason for the hope that you have and, and, and be willing to give the cure that you would love that person so much that you don't really, it doesn't really matter what they think about you anymore, that you're willing to see them go astray so that you can give them the opportunity to give their lives to Christ, that you're giving them something that's valuable. You're giving them the greatest gift of all time, the gift of, of Christ and the gift of life. Can you guys close your eyes? Let me just give you a second just to, to pray to the Lord if you would.